Welcome to episode five of the Keep Me Covered podcast. Ben Blakely here, and I'm pleased to be joined by Matt Perino. Matt is a Buffalo Bills beat reporter at Syracuse.com. Matt, thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, buddy. So, Matt, we'll start with your upbringing. You grew up in Buffalo, so a hometown kid, and you were able to cheer on the Bills. And there was one game in particular that you were able to go to as a kid that's very special in Bills fans' kind of fandom and their memories from the 90s. So kind of explain the experience of going to the greatest comeback in NFL history. Yeah. Um, every time I bring this up, people always are like, yeah, like 500,000 people were at that game, right? But I'll never forget the image of my dad my two uncles and myself went to the game and we were literally in the three hundreds and we were at the top of the bowl. So like the last row in the stadium, you could see outside the stadium, obviously. And so by halftime, my dad, who's not a big fan of the cold, it was freezing. There was rain and snow and he wanted to go because the bills were down big at halftime. And I was like, I'm a kid. And this is like one of my first games. And I'm like, no, like they could still win. Come on. And, me and my one uncle talked my dad and my other uncle into staying. And early in the third quarter, as a couple of those touchdowns started to pile up, you turn around and the mass exodus that had happened at halftime, a lot of people left the stadium. Everybody was trying to get back in as they heard on the radio that like the bills were starting to make a comeback. The problem is the ticket tellers were closed or they weren't able to kind of get everybody back in that wanted to come back in. So people just started like climbing over the fences. It literally looked like a scene out of The Walking Dead. Literally people just climbing over each other to get back into the building. And it's funny, by the time, if you go back and watch the replay of the game and look around the, at, at the stands, by the end of the game, you'll notice that most of the people got back into the stadium. That pretty much shaped my fanhood, if you will, uh, growing up. We'll kind of move on a little bit. You attended high school in 1999, but you decided that you want to drop out of high school. What went into that decision to you know, kind of do something that, you know, a lot of people really aren't used to and kind of the fear of the unknown at that point. I wasn't really thinking about like the future or like uh, what it was going to mean long-term. I just got to a point where school just wasn't working. Like I was going through some personal like mental health stuff. So what happened was I started at St. Leo's in Amherst. I went there K through six. And then for my seventh grade year, my mom taught at St. John's in Tonawanda. And so for seventh and eighth, they moved me over there, which I actually enjoyed the school there, but it was uprooting, it was, it was moving and went over, made a bunch of friends at St. John's. All of them were either going to like St. Joe's, Canisius, Kenmore West, Kenmore East. I was districted for Amherst, which was fine in its own right. Like I knew a lot of kids from the neighborhood growing up and playing baseball in the area. So I went to Amherst and it was fine. And I kind of got my own friend group going there. And there was like about a year and a half. My dad comes home from work one day and he sits us all down. He's like, yeah, we're moving to Dallas, Texas. And I'm like, uh, really? So I got to go to a new school again. And so if you think about it, this will be my fourth school in three and a half years. We go down to Texas. We do that for eight months. And my mom was like, we got to get out of here. We got to get back to New York. This isn't working. I miss my family. I miss my parents. And so eight months later, we move back. And we don't even move back into the Amherst district. We move back to the Williamsville district. And I have to go to Williamsville North, which was fine. I, I didn't even hate the school. But I had just gotten to the point where it was so many new like stop and starts that I just kind of shut down. And I was just like, you know what? I can't do this again. And the problem is in high school, if you stop going, like it's just not going to work. And so I ended up just taking that year off, not really knowing what I wanted to do. After a while, it became clear that I was going to have to get my GED. And 
a lot of questions about my future at that point. By the time I like turned 18, 19 in the years, you know, I had a couple odd jobs here and there, but you know, my future was very much up in the air. So yeah, it was a difficult time. Unfortunately for me, or fortunately, because like I'm a teacher now, obviously. And when I talk to students about, you know, whether it be their journeys or, you know, starting out in college or, or getting through high school, whatever it is, it's always like, I always wish that I would have had my act together sooner, but I also wonder, would I have the same story if I did? Would I have waited until I truly understood what I wanted to do and then have a plan set in place, which is, I mean, if you want to talk about that, we can. I had a specific plan once I went back to school after I got my GED and I started at Erie Community College. I had a specific plan of, okay, I want to go here. I want to go to UB. I want to cover sports and I want to write about sports. And that was just like, I knew that was what I wanted to do, but it took me five years to figure that out. I didn't have that plan back when I was uh, skipping class and hiding out behind the Chinese food restaurant across from Williamsville North. So I didn't have to go to school. Like I didn't have that plan at that time. And so it took a little time. I had a very understanding family, a very like supportive family that, you know, allowed me to, to do that. Like, I don't know how many parents would just accept the fact that their kid just stopped going to high school. And I'm not advocating for that, by the way, as a matter of fact, that's one thing if I can go back and just finish high school, I would have done that because I, you know, I missed out on a lot of things. I just, I don't know if I'd be where I am today without every part of my story that I had. You have this epiphany after attending your GED that you want to become a writer and Erie Community College gave you that opportunity. What was that process like for you? Yeah, so the GED was really easy compared to what I thought it would be. Um, it was a couple classes. I think I took them at like Trocare College, actually. And then I took the GD, I passed, and you know, I kind of just went on cruise control. I had a couple of odd jobs. So I was doing landscaping first, and that was not for me. <laughs> I think I made it like two weeks. My uncle actually owns it, and we joke around about it still. Like He's like, you're the worst employee I ever had. I was like, yeah, I was not meant to be a landscaper to cut lawns and do all that kind of stuff. So once that kind of petered out, I, I worked at like a cell phone retailer for a little while. That didn't last long. And then I landed a former teacher of mine in middle school, she worked in administration at Duville College. And so she hired me to actually run their college center, which basically it's like uh, the student activity center, like the gyms in there, the fitness center, boardrooms, uh, conference rooms, like they have all the events there. So basically like every day, like it gave me a purpose, man. Like I went there, I felt like I had something that was mine that I can do that I felt like I was interacting with people again. You know, I mentioned the mental health stuff. Like I kind of just locked myself away in the basement for a while. I was like crushing Madden and NBA 2K and just ordering Domino's pizzas. And like, I'll never forget it just in a real bad rut. And I felt like that was something that really pulled me out of it. It got me back around people again. And I felt like I had a lot to offer. I just couldn't get started. And so once I did that, that helped like kind of get me back out of my shell a little bit. And then the second year I was there, they hired me to be the manager of the basketball team. And that was like where I got my first glimpse into college athletics and being around high level athletes, you know, the stories that they had to tell. And I was just enamored by it. And I was really like, I want to work in sports somehow. And one of the uncles that was at the comeback game with me that wanted to leave, he'd always told me over the years, like, you're a great writer. You know, everything there is to know about the bills. Like at the time, like I used to study Buffalo Bison's media guides. And I would know their roster up and down for a long time. I, I don't know if I can remember them now, but for whatever reason, it took me till I was like 24, 25 to marry the two things together. I went to ECC because I got accepted and man, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. As a matter of fact, 
I'm supposed to be doing a speaking engagement at ECC for the first time since I graduated. And I was, I was so looking forward to it because that's where I started. I had so many good professors that like helped plot the course for me. And, you know, former sports editor I had as an adjunct, um, the two teachers that kind of ran the program were just phenomenal and former journalists. And it made my mind soar from a, like what's possible perspective. And, you know, I always wanted to go to UB. Like I always felt like, you know, we had like this really great university in our backyard and to go cover D1 athletics. And then it just started to snowball from there. And the story uh, was written. I want to talk about a date for a specific, and you wrote this when you were writing at the Spectrum at UB, and it's August 28th, 2008. And that's going to be a special day for you for the rest of the time. Why is that date so special to you? You're going to have to remind me. <laughs> I believe that was the day that you were accepted to UB. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. The year, dude, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. You throw random dates at me and it's going to be tough. I didn't want to get too, into too much trouble there. I, I thought that was around the time that I met my wife, which it was, uh, I met her about six months before that. So I just want to clarify, but dude, that was the day that like all the hard work I had done to just get my life on track, to get my mind on track. It all paid off. It was like this exhilarating moment of just accomplishment combined with anxiousness combined with this is the chance that I've been like waiting for, working for, and now it's kind of given to me. And there weren't a lot of wins for me going back to the start of high school. I mean, there was a lot of L's over and over again. I, it got to the point where I feel like, you know, people just didn't have a, a lot of expectation out of me. And that's why if you talk to anybody in my family now, what I've accomplished in my career and in my life and like where I'm at now, 15 years ago, it would have been really hard to see this. And so that moment was just the birth of such an opportunity. And it's so funny how things work out in life. Sometimes that was, you said August. So that was almost a year after me and my wife started dating. I mean, I talk about some of the things that helped kind of open me back up a little bit. She was the key to all that. Like from the moment I met her, had confidence in me that my parents always had confidence in me. Like, don't get me wrong, but it's just a little bit different when somebody that's like your peer and then somebody that's like your partner, for them to have that unwavering confidence in you, she's propelled my entire career. Because every time something I did that didn't go great, she was there to tell me it's okay. Or something that I did really awesome and like a, a great accomplishment she was there to like keep me level-headed and so you know it just was this great run of really good things i've had so many mentors over the course of my career starting all the way back at ecc and before that i mean my, my uncle is a perfect example of somebody that i think we were just sitting around for a sunday dinner and he had just mentioned that and it always stuck in my head that was the kind of foundational building block that got this idea started and now 18 years later the things that I've done, where I've been in the world and the things that I've gotten to do, the people that I've met, you can trace it all back to him, really, with just that comment. It's amazing how you can change somebody's life with just a conversation. When you get to UB, this drive in you just goes off and you end up joining the UB spectrum and you end up becoming the editor-in-chief your senior year and you end up winning media, the leader of the year that year. And I know you're almost 40, but I want to kind of get your perspective on this. Is there a favorite story that you remember from writing at the UB spectrum that, you know, you'll kind of hang your head on the most? So definitely probably the Xavier Ford story, which I actually did win an AP award for that. Uh, it was a feature story. He was the highest touted UB recruit in program history at the time and had this amazing story. I was just kind of talking off to the side with some SID folks. And they told me that it's been a crazy journey for him. I mean, at 12 years old, his grandparents raised him, and every day his grandfather had trouble walking. 
And so he would deliver papers overnight to pay for food for their family. And then he would go to school. And so I got the ball rolling. I spent like weeks, maybe months on that story. And it turned into this really great feature. So that would definitely be probably my favorite because of how much it meant to me to really get in the weeds with that. But I could also like a one B to that. I was doing my first semester as editor in chief. I was doing a story on a graduate student association rally. I think they were advocating for some type of financial package or something. I can't remember what it was, but I just wanted to go cover it, talk to people about it and, and do like a, a small news story for this, the favor. I ended up meeting this woman. Her name was Sunday Moulton. And we got to talking and she kind of gave me some quotes for the story. And then she started talking and like telling about how hard of a semester it's been in summer that you know, she lost her mother in the tornadoes in Joplin, Missouri, where she's from. And this all just happened in the last six months. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, so I started talking to her, talking to her. And this ended up turning into, I think I did like two or three paragraphs on the GSA event and ended up doing this for a week later, this front page feature story where our graphic design team put together this really cool image of a picture from the tornadoes and, you know, a picture of her intertwined from a picture at UB. And so it was really cool. It was a really good feature. She took us into like hearing about that for the first time and like being on the phone with her mother as she was trying to find shelter. It, it was that first moment as a journalist, like a, I'd always just got into it to cover the games, right? Tell people stories. And you can get to those kinds of stories with athletes. Don't get me wrong, but this was just such a real life story. And the look on her face when I delivered a paper to her the next day, I mean, I was hooked on it, man. Like this was definitely something that I wanted to do for my career. A couple months later, I did another story. And are you from Western New York? Where are you from originally? I'm from Rochester area. So I kind of got an idea. Okay. So you might have heard about this. Like, I think it's now what, 13 years ago, there was a military veteran who uh, had lost his legs in uh, service. He went to Darien Lake with his family ended up falling out of the Superman ride and he fell to his death. And I found out from somebody at UB, I think that his nephew was on the ride with him and he was a student at UB and he was gone for a semester after it happened, obviously to mourn and to deal with all that. But when he came back, I heavily pursued him to kind of get the story and the account of that. And it ended up running later in the semester. And it was probably the story that I would say I'm most proud of because it was the hardest interview I've ever had to sit in, like asking this 19 year old college student what it was like to be involved in the most horrific moment of his life. And to this day, we're still connected on social media platforms. We like each other's stuff and don't talk a lot, but I just think that maybe that was a bit cathartic for him to be able to go through that moment and provide that for him. And journalism can do that sometimes, you know, to get your story out there and have it be something that he's always gonna go through that his own self, right? But to share the story and have people empathize and support you, like, I think that that was one of the cooler stories that I did too, uh, my time at UB. So those were my big three, if you will. With all those stories there at the University of Buffalo, you graduate May 2012. And then in August, you joined the Tonawana News as a sports editor. And there's a story in 2013 that you wrote that, you know, I took some time to read before this. And it was about the Tonawana uh, MMA fighter, Brian Bacolo, and a very gripping story about his battle with cancer that he unfortunately lost a couple months later. So was that when your passion for MMA and UFC started? Um, no. So the, the passion had already kind of begun. It was born uh, actually when I met my wife, her brother-in-law, huge MMA fan. Like he would go to every UFC pay-per-view at Buffalo Wild Wings. And after a while, like I just started going with them. And that was like when Brock Lesnar was kind of starting to his ascent in, in MMA. And so I, I just fell in love with it. I loved 
I loved boxing growing up. Like my dad would take us over to my other uncle's house and we'd watch all the big fights, Tyson, Lennox Lewis. Like that was my kind of era. And so I loved MMA. So like when I got to the Tonawana News, there was actually the biggest amateur MMA outfit probably in New York state because it wasn't legal professionally yet in New York was TNT Victory MMA. Uh, it was run by Don Lilly, who I'm actually still pretty tight with. He actually is a manager for Patchy Mix, who fights in Bellator. He's fighting for a title pretty soon here. I think he's fighting Kyoji Horiguchi. I never covered Mix there, but the guy that was a professional MMA fighter, the biggest guy in the area, Eric Herbert, he actually fought out of TNT too. And it was all right there in Tonawanda. Like their, their headquarters were right over by Rainbow Rink in Tonawanda. So I just dove headfirst into that. I was covering their events. And honestly, in hindsight, I don't know if I've given them and that situation enough credit for getting the gig in the UFC. I think that that probably had a lot to do with it. I was covering it on the ground. I think that they kind of liked that you know, how passionate I was about it, even though pro MMA wasn't even around here. And uh, I did a bunch of feature stories over uh, the two years that I was there. And the Piccolo story was something that it was tough, man. It was another one of those hard stories where you got to kind of dive into a really sad moment in someone's life. And for him, knowing that everything was going to end soon, it was super positive. And the work that he was doing to set up his family with a house before he passed away and he was trying to fight it was unreal. And that was a really cool story. And he opened it up, opened up for me, which was nice. I had a, a great editor at the time, Eric Duvall, who just passed away. Actually, he was our editor at the top. And then Neil Gully was the news editor. And they both helped me on that story work with it. We had a really cool, like close knit team there that really helped each other with your stories. But yeah, I took a long time on that one. And it came out that was probably my pinnacle piece for my time at the Tonawana News. So in April 2014, you end up leaving the Tonawana News and you go to Las Vegas and join the UFC as a digital content producer. So growing up in Buffalo and obviously meeting your wife there and, you know, your family back there and the long history that you already built there, how tough was it to leave Buffalo and go off to kind of an unknown place in Las Vegas? Are you posting this publicly? Yes. Okay. I just want to double check because Bill's fans are not going to love this. So I love Buffalo, right? Like I'm from here, the people, the city, I am not a winter guy. I just, I just am not a winter guy. And so when I got the job in Vegas, I was like West coast, like the desert, 70 degrees in December, sign me up, you know? And the thing is like, when you get into this business of journalism, you pretty much have an idea if you're covering sports, you're not starting out in Buffalo, Buffalo bills gigs are super hard to come by and I'm not a hockey fan. So the Sabres was never going to be really in my future. And so when this happened, I, so I was really struggling with the Tonawana news just from a personal and perspective. Like I was making like nine fifty an hour right out of school. I mean, hyper local journalism at that time. I mean, it's almost extinct now, but at the time you were making just peanuts. It was a hard life. I was working Friday and Saturday nights, copy editing until one in the morning, getting the paper ready while after like writing three or four stories for that edition, it was a lot of work. And so I got to the point after about two years where I was just, I was run down. I was really burnt out and I was scrolling on this website. Somebody sent me as teamwork online, which I, by the way, if you're you know wanting to get into journalism or work in pro sports, you got to be dialed in on that site. It's great. Even for journalists. And I found this posting with the UFC out in Vegas for a web producer. And I was like, I don't really know what a web producer even is, but I started reading through 
Like I never even envisioned that for myself. I was going to be a reporter. Like that was what I wanted to do. And so I started going through the job description and all the bullets were stuff that just kept making my eyebrows raise even higher. You're going to run UFC.com. You're going to curate stuff for the website. You're going to write stories for the websites. You're going to help develop video ideas for the website, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, sign me up. Like this sounds like a dream working for the UFC, like something that over the course of the last four or five years, I've just fallen in love with. It's perfect. So I did like eight interviews. I uh, flew out to Vegas and I was in a boardroom with seven executives just put me through the ringer, you know, asking me a million questions. It was really stressful. But at the end, I walked out and I felt like I really did well for myself. After all the interviews, it seemed like they really liked me. And I got a call like three days later, offering me the job and almost doubling my salary from what I was waking at the time. I want to do. So I was like, listen, I was so hyped because you get out of school for journalism and it can be rough at times, like financially speaking, like, all right, I just got married. We want to start having kids. What's the long-term viability here? If like, we're not seeing a significant uptick in salary. So it was a bit of a different path professionally. I was going to the team side of things, the league side of things. There's obviously a huge PR slant to that, but I learned so much and that I was there got me the job that I have because of how in the weeds I was with digital media digital development of media, social media, how to hunt engagement, how to sustain engagement from an audience. And like all of these key factors that were at top of mind, I was part of a complete UFC.com redesign. The UFC.com that you see today, I spearheaded that effort. Like people don't even really get all the stuff that I did at the UFC because it was multifaceted. I, I started on a show with Forrest Griffin. I wrote for the website. I ran a team of like seven or eight people. We did the website redesign. We did video series. We did all this stuff. I did a Dana White weekly column where I would go up to his office and want to talk about a stressful situation, going to Dana White's office and ask him tough questions. And he was always great. Like I will be friends with Dana White till the day that I die. He's one of the, the best people that I've ever met. Just in terms of like a guy that has everything that has built this empire and the way that he treats even people like me at the, the lower level that always screamed to me. So it was just this opportunity to go do something different and maybe just send me on a different course, but like, I'm going to embrace it. And it looked like an opportunity for me to do things and grow as a writer, as a journalist, as a sports media professional. And so I took it and that's what it did. And you want to talk about confidence, like doing media for a global audience. Bill's mafia is massive. Covering the bills is massive, but when some of my videos did like a million hits at the UFC, you just come out of that whole experience to a much more confident person. You have been in person for some of the most electrifying moments in UFC history. You have Ronda Rousey versus Holly Holm, McGregor's double championship at MSG. I mean, UFC is now this worldwide sport that everybody enjoys. They'll sit down and pay the 80 to $90 for pay-per-view now on ESPN plus, but with all the ones that you've been to, do you have a specific favorite event that you were able to go to and see in person? It's a great question. So MSG was like the biggest moment, right? It was a three and a half year, four year bill to Connor's double championship. He started talking about that very early on. So from a company's perspective, having the first event at MSG, having it be Connor McGregor, having it be him going up in weight class and then being there for it, like the energy in the building that whole night, like usually... When you go to a UFC event, there's usually a good solid crowd in for the prelims, but it's never full. MSG was packed from the moment the doors opened till Connor jumped up on the cage with the two belts. And so 
the energy in that building was just, it was so special. It was a historic night. It was the peak of Conor McGregor's career. Everything since then has been just not as great, right? It's been the kind of the come down. And so, yeah, I was there for the rise and I got out right as the fall was happening, I guess. So that was big. Rousey was the biggest spectacle of a fight week. First of all, traveling to Australia, that was super cool, Melbourne. Uh, that was an experience of a lifetime, but like the open workouts because UFC hadn't been legal in Australia. And so they kind of cleared that hurdle and they wanted to put a big fight there. So they put Rousey home and home was this superstar in the making. I mean, she was this elite boxer coming over super knockout power. And it was this huge event, the open workouts. I'll never forget. There were probably thousands in the square outside in Melbourne and like when Rana and Holly came out, like people were just freaking out. It was just such a cool moment. The weigh-ins were so intense. You could see like, you know, the rise of Rhonda. You could really see the toll that took on her that week. And that was one of the coolest parts of my job is like I was backstage for weigh-ins and open workouts. I got to see these professional athletes, these superstars away from the bright lights and the real human nature of what the job really is like. When people are looking at you, especially superstars like Rousey and McGregor, Every move you make is documented. People are watching you. There's no privacy to your life. Like it's why she's gone so intensely into this private lifestyle that she has now, except when she comes out of it for a few runs in WWE, she's a very private person. And I think, you know, being that spectacle for so long, that's what it did. But you know, those two fights for sure that you mentioned, those are probably my two favorites. I still go back to my first live pay-per-view, but my second with the company was UFC 173 when TJ Dillashaw upset Henan Barrow. That was wild. I actually did the walkout with TJ Dillashaw. So I was kind of just like there at the event, kind of seeing you know, how the sausage is made, if you will, backstage, looking at things. And so I kind of was just like, once the main event came, I had a really good friend there, uh, Juan Carninas. He, uh, he does what I did on the Spanish side. And he kind of was showing me the ropes, like where you can stand, where you can take pictures, all this kind of stuff. So I was kind of on the back when, when TJ Dillashaw and Barra were walking out. And then I got to watch this classic upset. I mean, talk about home upsetting Rousey. TJ Dillashaw was like a plus like 800 underdog, I think, in that fight. So that's when I was hooked even more than ever because the live reaction of like a big knockout, a big moment, it's unparalleled in sports. It's bigger than a touchdown. It's bigger than a slam dunk. It's bigger than a home run. It's just like an entire arena just for one moment erupting. And uh, that was my first dose of it. And I got to, I think my final count was 57 live events over my four-year run there. So it was amazing. I could talk about the UFC all day. While you're in Vegas, your wife would often say to you, well, if you were in Buffalo, this, and if you were in Buffalo, that. And after, <laughs> you know, four years in the UFC, you return home to cover the bills for New York Upstate and Syracuse.com. And you get to come home to a place that you're so familiar with. So do you believe that it was always in the cards for you to return home to where it all started? Yes. Like when we moved, we moved kind of with the idea that this was like not a long-term thing. This was like, we'll go out into the world. We'll see what op opportunities are. Now, getting back to Buffalo is going to have to be the right thing. Like I had kind of reached a level in my profession at that point where, you know, I was on track. I was probably on the road to becoming a vice president with UFC. When I left, I was the director of digital media. That was the, the likely next step. I'd probably be there. Like some of my contemporaries, my peers in other departments, they're, they're now VPs. And so that's kind of what I left to come back, which sometimes I think back to it and I'm just like, oh man, that would have been cool. But I, I love what I do. And I love where I'm at. Like as much as I hate the winters and snow blowing and shoveling and, and just 
traipsing around with two kids in tow in a snowy, wintry wonderland. Our both of our sides of our family are here. Like I love Buffalo. Like I, I coach my son's travel baseball team, the Diamonds, right behind um, our little neighborhood here. We can walk to it, and there's so many like little things that I just love about having my kids grow up here and. If you were to talk to the kid in the 300s at the at the top of the bowl at the comeback game, telling him years later you're going to be one of the top beat reporters covering the Bills, he would have just said no way. And so, like, it's a dream come true. It's a dream type of job. Every day that I do it, I I remind myself how lucky I am that I get to do it. My wife does as well. And so, um, yeah, I think we, the plan was always to come back. So you're not the only Bills reporter at Syracuse.com as you and Ryan Talbot have created this work family relationship. Obviously, he's in Olean, you're in the Buffalo area, so it's a little different, but you know, you guys do your podcast roughly every week. You know, you know Ryan mm-hmm. writes a lot, you write a lot. What is it like working alongside Ryan who, you know, I've talked with him before and he doesn't have a background in journalism. It's a little different road for him. So what is that experience like working alongside with Ryan? It's great, man. I mean, first and foremost, we're best friends. I mean, that's we've only worked together now for like four years here coming up, but we had connected about a year before I started the job. Like he kind of followed the UFC. I think he found out that I was from Buffalo and we kind of shared tweets back and forth. But when I got here, it's like, we have this really great dynamic in that we serve each other in a lot of ways, right? Like when you share a beat, you got to be a little bit unselfish. You got to be a good teammate. And I think our friendship that's been born out of our, our partnership has grown exponentially over the years. But what that allows us to do is just be there for each other and kind of work off each other. Like some beats have multiple people doing them. I mean, the Buffalo news has really four people that they could throw on the bills at any time. And so running it with two people can be a challenge, especially with the lift that our podcast is, but um, we just have this phenomenal working relationships. Like you know, whenever, you know, Ryan and, and the family get up to Buffalo, we usually have a dinner together. The kids play his kids are just a little bit older than mine, but Owen, his little boy and my son, Lucas, they're kind of close, I think two or three years apart. And so, um, yeah, we're just really good friends. And so when you have that dynamic, everything is, and we have just an amazing editor. We've had two amazing editors back to back here. Steve Carlick was our sports editor, our bills editor before he retired. And then now Chris Baker has picked up the baton and he's just been outstanding. And so when you have that kind of team, that's what makes it so great. People always ask me about, there's just often this confusion about like Syracuse and like why they cover the bills and like what's New York upstate and like just some confusion around the brand. And I kind of explained to them, well, the bills are such this huge beast of a media opportunity that there's probably more room for other outlets to start covering them if they really wanted to. So they saw an opportunity with Matthew Fairburn, what now, seven, eight years ago. And they just jumped into it. And the world of digital media and social media, you could pretty much cover anything from anywhere, especially with the pandemic too, for a global audience. I mean, I look at some of my clicks sometimes, they're coming from the US, they're coming from Australia, from the UK, China, Japan. I mean, anywhere you want to think about, especially on YouTube as well, there's Bills fans everywhere. And so like the Bills are like this larger than life brand that now I think people are starting to realize that, you know, Syracuse.com was super like forward thinking to kind of get into that market when they did. And now I think we do it as good as anybody, if not better. And so and Ryan's a big reason why, and he's so uh, go with the flow. I mean, he's a full-time uh, middle school teacher and um, to do that full-time and be the force that he is on the beat, even still it's uh, it's impressive. 
when it comes to, you know, your family life, like you mentioned, uh, you coach your son, Lucas's travel baseball team and your daughter, Kennedy, and your wife, Caitlin, who's been there since the start when you went to UB and everything just kind of came full circle. And with COVID definitely, I would say gave a lot of people that have children an opportunity to kind of just regress and have more of a family life. So for you personally, how do you balance having to cover the bills? Because let's be honest, this really isn't an off season when it comes to the NFL. How do you find the balance of being a Bills beat reporter, but also being a dad at the same time? Um, excuse me. Part of it is not sleeping a lot. <laughs> as evidenced by the yawn my daughter's actually been a little bit under the weather the last couple of nights so she slept uh, on the couch with me um, my wife actually had a concussion on sunday um she kind of like rammed her head into the back of our uh the trunk like the top of the roof there um when she was kind of going to put groceries away and so she was in the hospital so she's feeling better now but that all happened and then my son was sick for a minute then my daughter got whatever he had and she's been sick. So part of it is just like being able to adapt. I think having a good dynamic with my wife where she's really unselfish and selfless and takes care of a lot of the details of life that allows me to kind of just at the drop of a hat, like the bill signed Von Miller at six o'clock on a Thursday night. And I just got to go, I'm working the rest of the night. And there's got to be that dynamic to it, but there's some give and take too. Like I love where I work, uh, Syracuse.com advanced media. They really take care of me from the perspective of they know how much I work in season and then at the big parts of the off season. So when things aren't like super busy and there's not a lot to say or cover, like I kind of cruise, man, I'll be honest with you. I get to do a lot of stuff like around May, June, when my kid's playing baseball, like we cover mini camp and everything like that, but I'm spending a lot of time with him. And I'm usually, because I work at home, I get my kids off the bus every day. I pick my daughter up from school. She doesn't take the bus yet. And then Lucas comes off the bus. So um, there's a lot of little built-in parts of my job that allow me to just see my kids a lot that, you know, when I'm on road trips, like during the season and then in the off season, five days for the combine, a couple of days for the owner's meetings, um, senior bowl to some years, the kids are like, Oh, I don't want you to go again. But it's like, yeah, but I'm home every day when you come home from school and most kids don't have that with their dad. So um, it's just give and take. It's always like just trying to soak up as much time as I can with them when I can. You've said in the past that you bleed blue for UB and you found a way recently to kind of give back to the school that gave you all that opportunity. So kind of explain that new adventure that you're uh, going down now um, at the University of Buffalo. It was a bold choice to uh, take on a full-time teaching gig. Well, not full-time, but a full-time adjunct uh, one-class teaching gig uh, while being a full-time NFL beat reporter. Um, it's been challenging, man. I'll be honest with you. It's in a perfect world, I, I'd love to have more time to give to all these different things. But when you have three things pulling you, like the, well, the main thing being dad and then the day job and, you know, all the other little things that come along with being, you know, here in Buffalo with, you know, big family. And, and then you throw on top of that, being a professor for the first time, it's stressful. It's a lot. So I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if it's something that I'll keep doing long term. I love being back at UB. I love trying to be there for students. I might kind of transition maybe to more of a like speaker type of situation than being a professor. Like there's so much goes into like lesson planning and studying like trends and like how to make the classes really useful. Like I think just sharing my experience, something that I'd, I'd probably prefer doing um, and being like someone that can be a, you know, an olive branch for students, but I've enjoyed it. I've loved it. I may continue doing it next year. Even, I mean, it's been 
you're actually catching me in the deciding part of all of this. So I don't know what the future holds, but I've loved being in the classroom. I've loved kind of like working with students. We had this one store um, student last semester, two students uh, kind of slow played it. Like the assignment is you got to do eight stories per semester. You got to write eight stories for the class. And by the end of the class, they were straggling. Like they didn't get a lot of them done till the end. But their big story, which we take, it's kind of like it can be an investigative piece or it can be like an in-depth feature. And they crushed it. Like it, it was this story. It ended up running on the front page in the spring semester in the first issue. And it was just this great story. And I worked with them week after week, like going over, uh, who do you have to go talk to? What are you trying to get out of this interview? You have this information that's good, but you have to weave a different narrative. And like, it was all this workshopping on the story and it ended up being this phenomenal piece. And if I walk away from teaching, at the college level, at any point, like having stories like that, where I made a tangible difference for like a young journalist learning this thing. That's what I got into this to do. And that's what I love doing. Um, it's just, it's really tough to do it while being a full-time beat reporter. And there's so many like things that we've, you know, we're going to change and add to the beat and our coverage and like doing all of that while trying to hold all of these boulders. It's, it's hard. So I'm going to put you on a spot for the second. Uh, I don't want to scare you, but you do your weekly spot with the fan Rochester with Gene and Mike, and uh, you <laughs> you are going. not a fan of the garbage plate. You know, I'm a Rochester kid. Mike grew up in uh, North Dakota, but Gene is from Rochester, you know, went to Fordham and everything. So Buffalo's coming back to training camp at St. John Fisher for one more year, hopefully, maybe even more. But when you come to Rochester, and if Gene or Mike, it'll probably be Gene, because Mike... Uh, Mike's not a fan of them either, but will you end up trying a garbage plate when you come to Rochester? Yeah, I'll try one. I'll go to the place that everybody recommends. Uh, what's it called? What's the popular one? Nick Tahoe's. All right, Nick Tahoe's. I'll, yeah, I'll grab a plate. Um, try not to puke when I look at it. No, I, it's probably good. Like, if it's well-made food. Like I've, so there's a place, uh, it's called UB Hots. It's by the campus. And I think I did go out and get drunk one night and then I had a garbage plate from there. Bro, it was the grossest thing I've ever had. So maybe I just haven't had a good one. Uh, so we'll see. But um, how many calories are on a garbage plate? Let me ask you that. Oh, God. Um, you're putting me on the spot now. Uh, it's got to be more than your daily allowance. So, you know, 22. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I'm out. Like any type of offering where you're exceeding on a plate, the daily allowance of calories, like if it's more than 2000, I'm out on that experience. Like my wife, she loves those Ben and Jerry's things and they're real shrewd and they put serving size. And then they put three servings in it. So it looks like it says 430 calories. Well, that's really like 1500 calories in one of those little things. And you could put one of those down easy. Those are the kind of things that like, those are dangerous games to play. Now, when it comes to Buffalo food, obviously Buffalo is known for a lot and you're growing up there. Uh, so kind of putting you on the spot now, again, what is a food in Buffalo that Rochesterians need to try before they die? Ooh. Um, so a real good beef on whack. I feel like if you've never had one, because like, if you're from Rochester, you've probably had good wings in Buffalo at this point. Like you're not going to grow up in Buffalo or Rochester, not be in Buffalo at least one time and have one wing. Like you probably got, had an anchor bar or a Duff's or something like that. So you probably had that. So I'll go beef on whack because you have like a really elite one, a really good one. Actually a little tip. Like if you're ever in grand Island, there's this little place it's called Adrian's. It's just like a little like shop. It's like a like burgers and stuff, but they do beef on whack, bro. I'm telling you the beef is the cleanest. It is superb roast beef. 
go there, get that. They got a little ice, like soft serve ice cream going on there too. Get a little cone with some sprinkles. Boom. Beautiful afternoon on the Island. Matt, you've been so gracious with your time, kind of explain to the listeners where they can find you on social media and, you know, a couple of things that you and potentially Ryan have got cooking up in the next couple of weeks with, you know, the draft right around the corner. So, yeah, thanks for uh, having me. Thanks for uh, letting me give a little shout out here. Yeah. Find me at, at Twitter at Matt Perino. That's where everything funnels the podcast, our stories, any type of analysis, you're going to find it there. You can look up the podcast, the shout Buffalo football podcast. It's on, uh, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. You can watch it live on YouTube. Search Buffalo Bills on NY Up. If you search Shout Bills, you'll find it as well. But the channel is called Buffalo Bills on NY Up for now. And then, um, yeah, we got a bunch of things working. I'm, I'm heading to Florida. Owners meetings. I might have something else cooking down there for uh, a story and, and some content. And then uh, I'm going to Disney World with my kids for seven days. So I'll be off the grid for a couple of days. But um, yeah, and then it's going to be full blast, full bore draft coverage when I get back. Thanks for listening to episode six of the Keep Me Covered podcast. And thanks again to Matt Perino for coming on for this episode. My name is Ben Blakely. You can follow me on Twitter at BenBlakely18. And be sure to give Matt a follow as well on Twitter at Matt Perino. And to listen to this and any other episodes of the Keep Me Covered podcast, be sure to find us on Spotify and on Anchor. Just search Keep Me Covered.